I'd invite you to take a Bible with me this morning, turn to Matthew. Uh, we will be in Matthew's gospel for quite a while. Um, it started last week. We find ourselves this morning in Matthew, the 10th chapter, Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 24, Matthew 24, 10, 24 through 39. I'd invite those of you who are with us, if you're able to stand with me um, in honor of the Lord's word. Jesus said, disciples are not greater than their teacher and slaves aren't greater than their master. It's enough for disciples to be like their teacher and slaves like their master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, it's certain that they will call the members of his household by even worse names. Therefore, don't be afraid of those people because nothing is hidden that won't be revealed and nothing secret that won't be brought out into the open. What I say to you in the darkness, tell in the light and what you hear whispered, announce from the rooftops. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Instead, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a small coin, but not one of them will fall to the ground without your father knowing about it already. Even the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who acknowledges me before people, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But everyone who denies me before people, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. People's enemies are members of their own household. Those who love father or mother more than me aren't worthy of me. Those who love son or daughter more than me aren't worthy of me. Those who don't pick up their crosses and follow me aren't worthy of me. Those who find their lives will lose them and those who lose their lives because of me will find them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you were with us last week, or if you weren't, uh, let me catch you up just a little bit. We are going to spend uh, 24 weeks in the Gospel of Matthew, but the lectionary in this time called Common Time has just dropped us right in uh, the ninth and 10th chapters of Matthew. And so let me just give you a little reminder of what Matthew's trying to do. In the opening of the Gospel of Matthew is a genealogy rooted in three things, or actually two people and one thing, Abraham, David, and the exile. 14 generations from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from exile to Jesus. So that Matthew is not uh, being coy. He is trying to tell us this story of Jesus is going to be rooted in the fulfillment of all the promises that God made to Abraham. All that God was doing in the life of this people called Israel, Abraham's children, is going to come to fruition in the life of Jesus. And it's going to bring about a kingdom, a kingdom that is usually associated with the rule of David, the great king, but where things kind of went off with the son of David, uh, Solomon, and things began to move in a different direction. Now a new son of David will come and it will bring about the kingdom that God expected to reign on, uh, above his creation. And then the exile, that separation, not only of Judah and Israel, but back all the way to Eden, that the exile of the creation from its creator, Christ is going to fulfill Israel's story. He's going to bring the kingdom of God, but he is going to bring the healing and the bringing back of the whole creation from its exile. 
as we looked at. Uh, the first few chapters are kind of uh, framed in terms of retelling that story. Mary and Joseph have to go to Egypt, take baby Jesus to Egypt. There's a ruler trying to kill, kill male babies. Eventually Jesus will pass through the water, end up in the wilderness and go up on a mountain. And all of that should ring a bell for us that Matthew is trying to tell us that Jesus is the recapitulation of Israel's story. This morning, before we get to kind of the meat of the text, I do want to show you one other kind of teaching thing in the Gospel of Matthew as we think about this. If you will put something in chapter 10 and go with me to chapter 7, verse 28. So the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it ends this way. Matthew, this is Matthew 7, verse 28. When Jesus finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he was teaching them like someone with authority and not like their legal experts. And now if you'll go with me to chapter 11, verse one. So we, we looked at mostly the end of chapter 10. We get three more verses next week in chapter 10, but then we get this in chapter 11, verse one. When Jesus finished teaching his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So Matthew gives us a kind of clue every once in a while that he is finishing a section of teaching. And so we get one major section of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and then it closes with, he taught with authority. And then in chapters 8, 9, and now 10, we get teaching in chapter 10 about this mission that we have been invited to. And at the end of chapter 10, verse 1 of chapter 11, we get this, and Jesus taught his disciples. And then we'll move into a third one, and then we'll move into a fourth one, and then we'll move into a fifth one. And so what I want you to see is this, that many scholars, as they look at Matthew, recognize that Matthew shapes the life of Jesus around four teaching cycles. I'm sorry, five teaching cycles, five major moments of teaching. Now, it may very well be the case, scholars argue, because Matthew isn't explicit, but it seems that Matthew isn't trying to hide his agenda of re-narrating the story through Abraham, David, and through the exile, that he, would not, that he would not be afraid to include Moses in the retelling of that story so that these five major sections of teaching in some ways relate to the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and that we're getting these five major sections of teaching. That was really good, and that will be on the test. But, um, but we have been in the second, we are in the second major section of teaching. I mean, if you were with us last week, chapters eight and nine give three sets of three miracles. There are nine miracles, some about our bodies, some about delivering us from spiritual uh, oppression and forgiveness of sins, the other uh, that sets us free from a kind of bondage that allows us then to speak and to hear the kingdom of God. And now in chapter 10, the section that we read is the major block of teaching. Um, I, I want to this morning think about kind of four things in this section that we have looked at. And as I was praying for it, thank you again for the way that you uh, celebrated um, our fifth anniversary. Today is actually the official day. Today is five years that we've been, been here. And as I was thinking about this sermon, I thought in some ways this is the perfect kind of sermon because the kind of four things that I see in the text are, are like playing the greatest hits of the last five years. Um, I thought this, I, I promise I'll be back next Sunday, uh, but this would be a good um, farewell, uh, chill out, see you later kind of sermon because um, in so many ways this text encapsulizes four things that I have said over and over and over again. So if you have not paid attention for the last five years, you get one last chance. Here it is. Although I'll probably repeat it again and again and again later. Uh, we'll, talk, we'll do the same thing um, five years from now probably. But, um, 
But if you have your Bible still open, go back to verse 24. Disciples aren't greater than their teacher and slaves aren't greater than their master. And then the last couple of verses, verses 38 and 39. Those who don't pick up their crosses and follow me aren't worthy of me. And those who find their lives will lose them and those who lose their lives because of me will find them. That as Jesus teaches his disciples to take up this mission and to move forward. And by the way, one of the interesting things about Matthew is that we, Jesus teaches them about this mission, but Matthew gives us no account of their actually going on the mission. Mark and Luke tell us that they did it and they had some success and a whole lot of failure. Matthew just kind of leaves it there as though this is not just intended for the disciples, but it's really intended for us to hear too. And so as, as Matthew sends us out and invites us into this mission, we are reminded that the primary mission is to be disciples, reflections of Jesus, and in particular, to be people who carry the cross into the world. That we are a people shaped by the cross. Now I have to say, I, I have... I talk about this a lot because I feel like growing up, especially in, a, in kind of evangelical Christianity of the last 30 or 40 years, that it's not that we don't talk about the cross, that we do. But the way that we talk about the cross more often than not, and especially the ways that we sing about the cross tends to be in this kind of way. That when we think about the cross of Calvary, we think of it as something that God the Father and God the Son had to take care of between each other. And usually it goes something like this. God the Father in his justice and in his holiness is both offended in his justice, but also um, kind of marred in his holiness by human sin. And so therefore cannot receive us or embrace us into relationship. Something has to be done to atone. That's usually the word we use to atone for that sin. And we usually look back to the Old Testament sacrificial systems as a kind of model of that. And so the priest would bring a sacrifice and uh, would kill that lamb, cook it. And there's a sense there in which God then would say, okay, I can now kind of overlook that or I can now bring you into relationship because of that sacrifice. But the sacrifices were always kind of temporary and they didn't last very long and people tended to fall back into sin. And so what we need, if you will, is a kind of super sacrifice. And not all of this theology is bad, although I'm making it sound a little bad, but it is, what we need is a kind of super sacrifice. And so Jesus came and we, and we say these kinds of things, Jesus came to die as though his teaching and life didn't matter. What, what, he, what we need to do is get Jesus to the cross so that God, the son can then kind of pay off the justice and the holiness of God, the father. And so then we can get in on that by kind of believing that or confessing that. And then we gather together and say, yay, Woohoo! praise the Lord. We didn't have to die. Somebody died in our place. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So the cross becomes this moment of exchange between God, the father and God, the son. Now, again, I don't want to dismiss that. If I had more time today, I'd want to think about ways to shape that for it is an important part of the cross. But if that's what the cross is about, then when Jesus says to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me, they should say, like, what does that mean? For I certainly, no matter how valiant a death I might die, could not be a kind of atoning sacrifices for the sins of anybody, let alone myself. So what kind of cross do I take up if the cross is simply a way for 
God the Father and God the Son to be able to make space for us in their life, then what in the world does it mean for disciples to take up a cross? And this is where I have said over and over again, I'm going to say it again. The cross is not just something the Father and Son have done. The cross and the mystery of who God is, the cross is the embodiment of not only the self-giving love that will overcome the sin and brokenness of the world, but in such a strange way, the cross itself is God's victory over sin and violence and brokenness in the world. And we now are invited into that mission to participate as reflections of that same self-giving love that we see in the cross of Christ. This is why it's connected to his teaching. If we go back a little bit in Matthew, Jesus can say, turn the other cheek, go the second mile. Don't just love your neighbor, but love your enemy as well. That is the very embodiment of what it means to be people who have taken up their cross in the world so that we are participants in that cross. We are called to participate in the mission of God in overcoming sin, violence, and brokenness in the world with his self-giving love. Thanks, Brent, for saying amen. I know people online said it too. That was good, all right? So Jesus says, listen, I'm sending you out in the world, but here's the deal. You are going as bearers of the cross. And because of that, then, there are certain aspects of life that are going to happen because you have taken up the cross. And so this morning, I want to think about them in kind of three spheres, kind of what I'll call the macro sphere, the big sphere, the kind of medium, and then the individual you with me? Big, medium, little. In the big, it goes like this. Verse 26. Therefore, don't be afraid of those people because nothing is hidden that won't be revealed and nothing secret that won't be brought out into the open. What I say to you in the darkness, tell in the light and what you hear whispered, announced from the rooftops. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Instead, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Aren't you sparrows sold from a small coin, but not one of them will fall to the ground without your father knowing about it already. Even the hairs of your head are all counted. That verse was much more impressive when I was younger. Um, don't be afraid for you are worth more than sparrows. So Jesus is saying to them, listen, as I send you out into the world, it may not go well. Because the, forgive my language here, but the politic of the cross is not a politic with which the world is familiar. In fact, the politic of the world, no matter what time, moment, culture, nation you step into, the politic of the world is largely shaped by fear. It's shaped by many fears, shaped by the fear of death, could be. It's shaped by the fear that you may lose control, that you may lose power. And so what happens is the ways that we participate in politic in the world, not just right and left, vote every four years kind of politic, but the way we even live with neighbors, the way we live in communities is largely shaped by fear. And so Jesus will say over and over, stop it. Don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. Don't fear that the way they want you to fear. For you are shaped by a different kind of awe. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I don't know if you saw this, but on ESPN a few weeks ago, there was a kind of two-part documentary series on Lance Armstrong, the bicyclist. Do you remember him? Um, 
So Lance Armstrong won a bunch of Tour de France's in a row, overcame cancer and won. Um, but then a few years ago, it was revealed that the whole time that he was competing and winning, he was doping. That he was taking all sorts of drugs that were making his body work better, that he was actually doing blood transfusions and all sorts of things that were elevating his performance ability. And when that was discovered, not only for Lance, but also for a large segment of the cycling community, all of his yellow jerseys and all of his trophies were all kind of stripped away from him. And the documentary was kind of dealing with how is he dealing with sort of the shame of having lost everything, of having won everything, but then now having lost everything. You with me? But one of my favorite parts of the documentary was when they were not only interviewing Lance, but all, uh, many of the members of his cycling team and the USA cycling team. When they discovered um, Lance was really young and was coming up in cycling, and the first couple of times he competed internationally, he did really well. But then all of a sudden he found that he couldn't compete like he was competing. A couple of national teams were winning everything. And then he found out the reason they were winning everything was because they were doping, because they were using performance enhancing drugs. And he and his team came to this moment where they had to say, okay, what are we going to do? Are we going to take all of these performance enhancing drugs so that we can win and compete or are we not going to do that, right? Now to me, the, the strangest part of the documentary was basically they said, was that a hard decision for you? And he went, no, I wanted to win. I, I didn't even have to pray about it. I just went for it, right? And I won. But it was interesting to have them interview other team members who said, yeah, we wanted to compete too. And so we joined in and others who said, I knew I would never win. And I knew my time on the team would be short, but I just wouldn't do it. Are you following me? Jesus is essentially saying to us, as you go out into the world, here's your temptation. Your temptation is going to be the world operates by fear and manipulation. And you're going to be tempted that that's the only way to win. And in fact, because you are committed to the way of the cross, it's often going to look like you are losing, but someday it will all be revealed. And those who have looked like they have won will actually have lost. And those who look like they have lost will be vindicated because the new creation, the kingdom where the lion and lamb lay down together, where love has ultimately won, you will be vindicated because you will have been committed to that already. Are you with me? And so I'm not going to say a lot about this because every four years I just try to keep my job. But let me remind you, you and I are people of the cross. And the temptation for people of the cross is going to be, that's nice, but we can't win. And because we can't win, we better play like everybody else. Because this is the way the game is played if you want to win. Now Jesus says this, if you do that, you will lose your soul. Can I just say my fear as a leader in the church in the U.S. is not that we won't win, it's that we will lose our soul. When all is revealed, we will have lost our soul. And so in this macro level, we are people who are committed to the way of the cross, believing that that is where ultimate victory is found. 
Now, look at, with me at these verses. These are great for today. Verse 34. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. I've come, happy Father's Day, I've come to turn a man against his father. By the way, I have a history of picking bad texts on bad Hallmark holidays. Uh, this is not my fault. This was the lectionary. Um, resurrect the lectionary committee and blame them. Um, I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his, her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That one wasn't hard. But um, the people's enemies are members of their own household, right? So Jesus is actually quoting Micah here, an Old Testament prophet, who's essentially saying this, when God brings about his restoration of the people in exile, here's gonna be the problem. Some are gonna be, yes, let's go. Let's go back to, the, to Jerusalem. And others are gonna say, mom and dad, no thanks. Um, we were on Zillow and looked at real estate in Jerusalem right now, and it's all just kind of rubble. And we have a 30-year mortgage on a cabin in the Babylonian woods here. And like, we're, we're good here, right? But this new, creative, this thing that is going to draw people in is actually gonna divide people because we're gonna find out what one's values are. Remember the first time, maybe some of you will resonate this, remember the first time that you realized with your own family of origin, you had been shaped by such different ways of seeing the world that Thanksgiving became awkward? Don't say amen to that. Just don't nod even, just say, mm. <laughs> But Jesus is saying, listen, I have come to bring a kind of community that will be so shaped by the value of the cross, will be so shaped by the politic of self-giving love that it will redefine social boundaries, social communities of identity. And so if there's been another thing that I have said over and over again, and Brent has said amen every time I've said it, the gospel brings about a new community of identity, a people called the church. That's why Jesus can say, who are my mother and my brothers? It's why in a first century community whose two primary identities were that they were Israelite and that they were part of a family that was having children to build up Israel, the two leading figures in the New Testament could both be single because they believed that there was a community of identity called the disciples, the apostles, the church, that was their primary place of identity. I say this over and over again because it's so, because this is so hard in the 21st century where the church is essentially a supermarket for Jesus. And where the church is a place we go, not something that we are, but I will say it again and again and again. Every time you bring a child, your child to the church to say, look what happened. We as a church will say, thanks be to God. And not just, oh, we'll help. But yes, we will pray, we will live as though that child is part of this community that we are surrogate parents and uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters. We will love this one into faith. That's why um, I, will, I will die on this one. <laughs> The church does not exist to make America a better country. And the church does not exist to make your family healthier. Both of those things may happen, but the family is not, even in Idaho, the family is not the primary unit of identity for those who follow Jesus. 
the family finds its purpose, its meaning, because of its commitment to the mission of Christ in the world. Um, just a random thought. When Jesus says you'll get in trouble, more often than not, when he says you'll get called worse than Beelzebul, it's usually not Romans calling you Beelzebul because they don't know what that is. The greatest persecution in the early church did not come from the Romans, it came from those inside. Lastly, we find then uh, our identity in Jesus. That last verse, one more time, verse 38, those who don't pick up their cross and follow me are worthy of me. And those who find their lives will lose them and those who lose their lives because of me will find them. I think because of working so long with college students, I'm obsessed with this issue of identity and I, I talk about it a lot. But I think that I think, uh, Reuben Welch used to say that, I think that I think these two things. I think that I think that there are two lies that contemporary culture tells us about identity. The first is that we will find our identity somehow from within. And the second lie is that the ultimate purpose of life is to be happy. That's why, as I've said, it's really hard to be a parent because we're just trying to help our kid find who they are without manipulating that too much because that would make us bad parents. And so we just run them to event after event after event, trying to help them find who they are and hopefully it's a good identity. Um, and we just, oh man, we just want them to be happy. If this last verse is right, it translates really well into the 21st century. If you try to find your life and that way you will lose it. That for Jesus, the source of identity is actually in losing or committing one's life to the kingdom and to the cross. And if th these verses <laughs> say anything at all, is that the goal, the purpose of life is not ultimately to be happy, it's to be holy. It's to be good. And so our identity is found as we discover the ways that our life is given away for the sake of the kingdom. I was thinking about that in light of today being Father's Day. Um, as I think about my own sense of self, so much of my self-identity comes through various forms of commitment, roles. Um, I've been Debbie's husband for a long time now. When I'm doing that best, it's when I'm not thinking about what I'm getting out of this covenant, but how this covenant is forming me. How learning to love this person who is learning to love me is forming me and shaping me to be a different kind of person. We thought we were having kids to make us happy. We realized quickly we were having kids to make us poor. Uh, as every parent in this room knows, if you had children to make you happy, you should have bought a dog. It's not that there aren't moments of real delight and joy in parenting. Part of what we celebrate on a day like Father's Day is how those of us who've been gifted with that title 
it's not the title that matters. It is, is what's being formed in us. It, the, the fathers we celebrate most on these days are not the fathers who think that their children will make them happy because they usually turn out to be kind of tyrants. But those who've realized the identity of father comes in laying down one's life for the sake of your children. I love getting to be a pastor, but I think people who love that title are kind of obnoxious. I love being a pastor, not because it's a cool title. I, I love being a pastor because in learning to love a community of people who haven't always loved me in return, something has been shaped and transformed in me. I love being a teacher, not because you get to flunk people, although that is kind of cool sometimes. But I love being a teacher because of what happens when you get to pour out one's life for the sake of a coming generation of leaders in the world. Some of you know that well. And so Jesus says, listen, if you wanna find yourself, especially in the pursuit of one's own individualistic happiness, good luck. But if you give up your life for the sake of the cross, for the sake of the purposes of the kingdom, you will find yourself and you will find then that you are living into the goodness, to the holiness for which you were created. And there you will find not fleeting happiness, but contentment and joy and purpose. Oh, amen. And so Jesus gives this whole long speech and says you are people of the cross and you practice a different kind of politic and now you're part of a different kind of family and your identity is found in a whole different kind of place. But at the end of it, if you are looking for a transaction and here's what's so challenging, I think for those of us in the 21st century, almost every commitment we make is transactional. I'll do this if I can get this out of it, including how and where we go to church. I will do this if I can get this in return. If you are looking for a transaction, Jesus has just preached you out of the kingdom. For there is little of transaction in this. But if you are looking for transformation, both of oneself and one's community and transformation of the world, Jesus says, then come and follow me. You won't always be called the best names. And you won't always fit in the culture. That whole cross thing will make you a square peg in a round hole sometimes. And will look like sometimes you're losing when you're actually winning. And it may really put pressures on the ways in which you relate to people because your value system will be so different than most. But if you take up that cross and follow me, you will find yourself and you will find that you are now a part of a new creation that can never be taken away. Thanks be to God. Help us today, Lord. Um, help us to learn the way of the cross um, in these days in which power is quite central in which fears motivate us. May we not fear and may we not lose our soul.
May our families be strengthened, not because the church has become the servant of the family, but because the family has found its identity in the mission of the church. And I pray uh, for all watching and participating today, but especially for the young. Um, we have fed them a couple of lies about how their identity is found. May their identity be found in the life and purpose of the cross and the kingdom. Have mercy on us. Uh, we are transactional, uh, not only by nature, but we have learned transactions well. Make us a people of transformation, we pray. And may your spirit transform us as we take up the cross, as we participate in your mission for the sake of the world. May you be glorified in us, your disciples. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray.